Welcome to Observable Stream. This is a podcast about programming, technology, and philosophy. This is our pilot episode. I'm Regan. I currently work at Picnic as a back-end software engineer, and I'm joined by Phil. Yes, hello. Thanks, Regan. Yeah, I'm Phil. I also work at Picnic. I'm a tech lead uh, of a couple of different projects at Picnic and always wanted to do some sort of podcast, so very, very excited to do, uh, to do this with Regan, and Regan's full of energy to put this podcast into some sort of distributable format, so I'm very excited to see where it goes. So I thought for this uh, first episode, we would kind of kick off with sort of going from reactive programming, since we, we work quite often with reactive programming in our day-to-day work. From your perspective, Phil, if you had to give sort of a high-level description of what reactive programming is to you, just your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. So my relationship with reactive programming has been that of a series of years. I think started off experimenting with it in 2015 uh, at my previous company and also spun it into a number of different little side projects that I had uh, just to expand my knowledge there. Because uh, I always found it, found it quite an intriguing topic and it was one of the first, let's say, alternative computational models that I dove really deep into. Very high level, yeah. Uh, reactive programming is essentially just a declarative programming paradigm, or a, a yeah a branch from the declarative programming paradigms. And uh, there are a number of ways which you can actually model or accomplish a reactive programming model. And uh, the ones that I think you and I, Reagan, are most familiar with are the ones actually kicked off by the reactive st- extensions project back in I think this was early two thousands by Microsoft, and they have a relatively, well, they all share a similar uh, core foundation and a set of uh, APIs uh, and for a variety of different programming languages. Um, But they have their main fundamental implementation reliant on declarative and functional uh, styles. And that's not to say reactive programming is really married to functional styles. So, you know, it lends itself very well to reactive programming. Um, but at the core of, I guess, what we use reactive programming for is that it's a declarative language that you model everything essentially as a declarative statement that reacts to a sequence of events. Um, and it does this over a variety, a few different signals. Um, and an event can be either the emission of a value of a type. Um, it can also be an error and it can also be a completion. Um, but the essential thing there is that you're always subscribing and listening to a series of events and that obviously lends itself very well to the functional style as well so uh, whenever you react to the emission of an event you can then yeah apply a series of composite functional operators whether that's map flat map reduce um, just to name the relatively basic ones and from that it also lends itself very well to concurrent programming and parallelism and it kind of abstracts away the nitty-gritty details of threading um, even though you still need to be aware of them because ultimately depending on the programming language that it's implemented on you have to be aware of the fact that there are threads or fibers or whatever it is that powers the uh, concurrency model within that language and for the JVM well what we use is RxJava and what we now use in Picnic is uh, Project Reactor which is essentially a stand-in replacement for RxJava with some cleaner implementations and cleaned up APIs. Um, but yeah, like I guess the interesting part about reactive programming is indeed that it's, uh, the, or at least the variants that we use are functional and declarative, um, as opposed to the imperative and procedural style that you would normally encounter when you, yeah, work with work with a typical Java, a piece of Java software. Um, so yeah. I think that's uh, probably one of the more interesting things about it. I find it interesting that you've you describe it as like a this mixture between declarative and functional programming because uh, I've always had the sense that uh, reactive programming is like this marriage between object orientation and functional programming where the observer is like this really core gang of four design pattern from pure object orientation but then you've also got these like pure functions and these flat maps and maps over streams. It's a sort of confluence of these two what is sometimes made to be very distinct movements in programming and they're kind of coming together to build these sort of concurrent widely distributed systems is reactive programming to you a paradigm to itself or do you see it as straddling basically these two schools of thought yeah definitely that's an interesting one because you mentioned that 
the observer pattern is actually a, indeed a gang of four principle from the is it 80s I think this is quite a while ago now uh, and it had even made its way into the Java uh, standard library I, I think in I, I, I guess in Java 3 or 4 or something like this one of the really early versions um, such that there was always an observable type um, in the Java standard library and to be honest I think uh, to my knowledge I'm not even sure uh, what all the use cases entailed. I think there was a lot of uh, also usage for uh, designing front-end applications with Java. Um, but of course, that's a relatively a thing of the past. Um, and they dropped this observer type and replaced, uh, well, replaced it with the, uh, with the flow type um, as essentially a more, well, as a, as a type that adheres to the reactive streams API. Um, which lends itself obviously well to integrating with other reactive programming languages on the always say programming languages programming frameworks on the JVM uh, but yeah no, if, with regards to the principles and the yeah the philosophy behind it indeed it is a bit of a mixed bag and that's why it's sometimes hard to explain because it's not really just a fra framework that implements one style um, and indeed there is a distinction between reactive programming and functional reactive programming and functional reactive programming being the you know the one that we're more familiar with um, an actual uh, reactive programming is indeed something from uh, has its foundations within from the from the very early days of computer science as well um, but yeah i think the for me the the sort of aha moment that i had was with using well previously with using the like fork join pools and uh, the concurrency libraries that ship with uh, Java, like the completable futures, it was just an aha moment to simplify this complex problem of concurrency and abstracting it away was really uh, a productivity booster for me. Um, that you know you could you could achieve these uh, higher degrees of concurrent implementations of your software, also with parallelism as well. Um, and that was made relatively simple and maybe too simple sometimes because it's abstracted away so much in these things called schedulers um, that sometimes even the users of of these APIs will not realize or yeah respect the fact that they're still relying on a very basic implementation with just threads and queues that is essentially what is uh, which what makes up most of these um, reactive streams implementations um, on the JVM and if you abstract away so much then you I don't know you forget that you're actually using these very fundamental um, concepts and it seems a little bit like magic um, but yeah no it, but one powerful thing is is that of course if you make your language declarative and functional uh, and it is reactive then swapping pieces of work from one thread pool to another or one schedule to another is relatively simple um, and even I say simple, but this is one of the harder concepts to get your head around when you're working with reactive programming, I think, is to uh, know where to place the right publish on and, and subscribe uh, on certain thread pools or on certain schedulers. That is sometimes not uh, super transparent, but once you once that sort of thing clicks and in general, when, once the whole declarative and functional style clicks in your head, then it becomes quite a breeze uh, to implement concurrent programming. I think philosophy-wise, I think there's also a couple of core uh, principles behind what they now um, have organized under the Reactive Foundation, and that's elasticity and uh, uh, resilience uh, patterns. And I think the declarative functional styles all also you know lend us lend themselves very well to those two patterns as well. And how do you feel about like Java as a as a host language for doing reactive programming? Because uh, when I've worked with like these Oryx Java and director libraries, it feels as though we're sort of trying to place a functional top over like a very um, procedural language. Have you worked in other languages that support Oryx principles that um, have felt like more at ease or felt more intrinsic to that, that language? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it is indeed like slapped upon the top. Um, I think in general, functional programming is something slapped on the top of Java, and you know, in Java eight, they just added the a few very basic functional operators with the streams and optional uh, types. And obviously, a purist would say, well, Scala is your functional programming language if you want to uh, work with if you want to do uh, functional programming on the JVM. 
So I think, therefore, that was a bit of an afterthought. I think in general, not to insult too many people, but in general there's a lot of stuff in Java that's a bit of uh, an afterthought, but they certainly do give um, enough space, I would say, to keep extending the JVM with experimental features and experimental patterns um, and paradigms. But I think, with regards to other languages, I've, I've really you uh, mainly use reactive extensions uh, libraries so uh, just very basic amounts of rxjs and rxpython uh, previously and they have the same f like foundations and fundamentals and um, you know you can obviously achieve object-oriented programming implementations with python and js so java also having that weird mix certainly to most people coming from a fundamental purist perspective of functional programming um, would say you can't really mix the two patterns um, like if you want to be f you know purely functional then you cannot also do object-oriented programming um, I think there's just a compromise to be made there and you know most people using Java are deeply embedded in the operate in the uh, object-oriented programming mindset so if it's just a little bit of a taster as to what the functional paradigm could look like then um, I think it's a pretty good effort from the um, yeah from the framework creators uh, and in general reactive extensions coming from uh, .NET I've seen .NET examples and it looks relatively similar to the implementations of RxJava so again object oriented not functional um, but applied sort of um, as an afterthought in a, in a separate framework um, because they saw a gap, let's say, in the Java market and the .NET market, where they where this pattern can really be powerful, um, and I don't think there's a problem there for with compromise uh, as such. But maybe as a a fresher perspective on the reactive programming paradigm, what was your take on it initially? I also felt it, it's kind of a a compromise between the behavior we want distributed systems to have and the thoughts inside the programmer's head. It is a bit of a cognitive overhead to maintain just just the idea of like having a reactive chain, this abstraction over a computation that might occur at some point in the future. Um, it's, I've actually noticed this happening in a whole bunch of different industries. It's, it's basically the same model as TensorFlow in Python, where you're describing like this model of, of a task that needs to take place and you're executing it at a later stage. And I found that to be quite an interesting development in programming as, as a whole. Part of me sometimes thinks it would be convenient to have a mechanism to describe reactive programming in a procedural manner, kind of like how async await is available in certain languages. But it, it, is, it, it can be difficult to reason about when certain operations actually take place or whether they take place at all. Famously, like the, the beginner issue with reactive programming is not subscribing to your observable and then things just don't happen of course but yeah the one interesting thing i've i've noticed is that some languages are more conducive to reactive programming when you think of rxjs so that the javascript equivalent of reactive programming I, I don't think it really needs to add too much to give reactive intrinsics to programmers uh, because it already has promised javascript already has promises and it has functional operators like reduce and map so that there's, I think some languages lean more into the paradigm of reactive programming than others. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. You said you first came across reactive programming around about 2015. Have you no noticed any sort of broad changes in the, say, the reactive community and also in the libraries that are available to, to developers? Yeah, so what you say is interesting that in RxJ, in, in, sorry, in JavaScript, uh, you anyway have this uh, promise which is quite often uh, used indeed to mo to uh, model essentially a, well a future or a promise for asynchronous operations and I think actually the front-end world was a little bit better prepared or a little bit better equipped uh, to deal with such frameworks and just in general had uh, more of a uh, familiarity with this kind of uh, asynchronous would, yeah, a asynchronous programming and and from when I started it was really in in Android uh, where I started using RxJava first 
uh, and there it makes a lot of sense um, as well because you're also of course modeling asynchronous front-end applications where uh, your resources are limited you have one main UI thread uh, and you want to do of course operations uh, and schedule them on uh, sorry background operations you want to schedule them on other thread pools and uh, you also want to update your uh, user interface asynchronously uh, so I think that's a really powerful application of reactive programming and then you saw it kind of being adopted by the uh, especially in the Java community for the backend uh, world uh, for like developing uh, cloud-based web applications and that was all really kicked off by Netflix um, back in 2014-15 I think and there they were making a sort of a migration to uh, or bigger wider migration to microservices and um, they needed a flexible uh, gate, uh, gateway API framework uh, to allow them to do concurrent uh, fetching from different services and different servers from different uh, places where they would need to aggregate then a uh, front-end response so I also saw it being a very powerful application of reactive programming there because it then allows you to achieve you know high degrees of current concurrency uh, when calling multiple backend services and then later of course you saw it being adopted more and more in the actual services themselves so not just the gateways but actually microservices with with a separated uh, concerns let's say the you know microservices that do one thing and one thing very well there I, I still question about uh, how powerful the application of reactive programming really is if you have an application that does a lot of work and therefore needs to take um, advantage of higher degrees or, or high yeah let's say a high level of concurrency or, or, or make concurrency easier and more flexible uh, and easier to achieve uh, with you know, as, with as little implementation pains as possible, then I, I see it as being beneficial. Um, but yeah, regarding the progress then of, you know, what have, what has the community actually produced or, or evolved? How has it evolved in the last uh, few years? Then I think mainly around the, the frameworks that sit around the wider reactive streams frameworks, um, better support for asynchronous IO uh, drivers, um, better support for asynchronous uh, web servers, um, everything that was around the sort of core libraries like RxJava and Reactor. I think there's been a hell of a lot of development there. Um, but I do see, yeah, I, I often question myself like, you know, you're shoehorning a lot of stuff into the reactive style. Um, you're saying, okay, well, this service, it does a very simple, so let's forget the gateway in the front end. Let's just, let's just keep it to the microservice itself. And it's doing a very simple job. It's maybe doing some crude operations. It's storing, fetching, deleting, uh, and updating some data from uh, a repository, which is then as its implementation, a Postgres database, or let's say Mongo uh, database. And you're now modeling you know the production of the of documents from the database as a stream and then you're doing operations over those documents you're aggregating them you are modifying them mapping them and, and returning them to the client uh, so you're essentially shoehorning your um, well, well I say shoehorning you, you know in Mongo you still have a cursor database cursor that if you're doing reads you're then iterating over a series of documents and of course the driver itself and the server will uh, you know, optimistically batch these into uh, uh, groups of documents that have then fetched from the database as an optimization. Um, and that those batch sizes, of course, you're then prefetching, let's say, 100 documents, uh, you're loading them then into memory, you're then breaking them back down into a stream, and then you're iterating over that stream, you're collecting it again and returning it to the client, or you're streaming it to the client if you're, uh, if you have the uh, driver support on both ends so if on the actual streaming of the HTTP response on the server and then actually the reading of a uh, of the uh, uh, let's say new line appended stream of JSON objects then that's great because you can then achieve sort of end-to-end -end, uh, reactivity uh, right from your database cursor all the way to your client that's then iterating through those uh, and if you at any point then need to halt that operation or or push back to the so then we can get onto back pressure in a minute but um it says poor connection but i'll i'll continue 
Um, but yeah, it, if you if you then have that end-to-end -end reactivity, then I think that's a really powerful thing as well. Um, there's a lot of um, development around frameworks like RSocket. So this is uh, essentially another application level protocol um, that is lending itself much nicer to the reactive style, uh, such that you can actually build end-to-end -end reactive systems that emits also the, let's say, metadata around events. Um, so whether error or uh, whether they are ne on next message um, for a, a you know an emission of a of a piece of data or an incomplete, but also back pressure signals as well. Uh, then you can really powerfully build end-to-end -end reactive systems and start to really eke out all of the benefits that end-to-end -end reactive systems can give you. Um, because up until now, it's been a relatively uh, core framework that sat in the middle of your application um, that shoehorns things into streaming then collecting and returning the collected response. And then another system which should then read from that, break it down into a stream, iterate over it. And, and it's then really you, you were getting the benefit from just your core, uh, yeah, your core implementation or your core business logic and your application being modeled as reactive programming. But now if you can tie it all end to end, then I think that's a very powerful idea. And, and for that projects like RSocket are really promising um, because they also uh, pose to replace technologies like WebSockets um, for actually these end-to-end, -end, uh, yeah, reactive signal passing. I have the sense that it's easier to motivate for the use case of reactive programming in the front-end sense, because you can clearly see when, when things go wrong. When, you're, when you block the front-end, you know, even the, the, the end, end clients, the, the user knows about it. Um, mo motivating for non-blocking systems in, in backends, I think, takes a bit more work to convince programmers. We've needed sort of high-performant databases and, and queuing systems for a very long time, and we have mechanisms like thread pools and caching for, for optimizing those. But there's no doubt that building things in a reactive sense does have its, its benefits, but I, I think there's entrenched knowledge in sort of doing old-style performance databases that is very uh, resistant to change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and if you were to see reactive programming go in one direction or another uh, in the future, where would you see it going? I'm very curious to see how things like Project Loom change how the internals of reactive programming are implemented. If, if you could conceptualize some of the reactive streams as actual just lightweight threads uh, that might simplify certain parts of the API, I still think that the barrier to entry for reactive programming is relatively high. Part of me thinks that it might be an interesting thing to see not a not a library imp implementation, but a language implementation of reactive programming. So if, if like small talk is the logical conclusion of object orientation and languages like Lisp and Haskell are the functional equivalent of the academic limit of where you can take those ideas, um, it would be cool if we just had an Rx language and to see how if everything is interpreted as an observable, and you don't have to always wrap things. Like in Java, you always have to wrap your, your types in, a, in an observable. They're not inherently an observable at, at any time. It might be an interesting thing to see, you know, just, you know, purely reactive languages, languages that are, that don't need extra work to make them reactive, that are kind of inherently reactive by nature. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would be super interested to see something like that. I think um, knowing, that, well, Having worked with RxJava for five, six years, and and you know, debugged a lot of the internals of that code, uh, and knowing the internals how they work, I'd be really interested to see if they can, uh, what an alternative implementation would look like. I guess I'm not as cr not creative enough to think of a good one, but um, the implementation now is declaring just you know a series of queues upon queues upon queues and linking them all together and passing messages between all of those queues. Um, I wonder, you know whether a another solution would be a, some sort of centralized message broker, uh, more like a traditional message passing interface or a point-to-point um, uh, -point messaging system um, that allows you also to do your multicasting, your single casting. Um, it, it allows the consumer to declare, to declare cues and to destroy them when it needs to, um, but for it to be more centralized such that it's um, 
they can optimize the usage of the internals. Um, I have no idea whether that would be a good idea, but it's something that occurs to me, like just in thought that is the other tools that we use to create these frameworks just inherent because of the language that they were built on? Or like you say, could there just be a completely uh, new standard set by a uh, small talk like implementation for the reactive programming paradigm? That would be super cool to see. And I guess that all starts in the academic world. Um, I wonder whether, uh, certainly a company like Pitnik probably couldn't pick up such a great responsibility to, to develop their own programming language. Um, and there would need to be some great commercial benefits for bigger companies to adopt something like that. So yeah, I, I would be, I haven't read much of the literature around reactive programming, to be quite honest, from, from academics. and would be interested to do more of that research uh, also to go back in time because that's one of my other pastimes is just trawling through the pages and the uh, history of, of where these paradigms actually originated from what problem they were trying to solve and how they've essentially been reinvented in the modern age and relabeled and rebranded as something else um, yeah so I, I but like you say project loop could could be and, and coroutines in general and, and Project Loom implementing fibers and uh, these really lightweight threads could just make that barrier of entry just way lower and you can get all of the, I wouldn't say all, but most of the benefits of reactive programming poses um, to uh, to the developer. Like you say, the the current implementations as libraries, their, their ability to sort of dig into the language internals is sort of limited by the compiler. Um, like the the JVM knows about completable futures, but it doesn't know about reactor streams or Rx streams, and it does Rx Java streams. And uh, I wonder if if it had if it had a deeper hook into the compiler and the runtime, whether it could optimize even further. Because when we when we chatted to that one developer from the reactive team you, when you hosted that meetup, um, I remember him saying that they, they sometimes collapse different concatenated operations as a sort of optimization. But I'm, I'm pretty sure more could be done if because all of that is happening at runtime. And in order to to not incur a big cost on performance, they're probably constrained by the depth and the complexity of the optimizations they can do there. So I, I, I'd be curious if if there was a, a compiler level implementation of, of reactive programming. And we could even ask the, the com computers are Computer architectures are called inherently non-blocking, or they're blocking, but they they are over a, a non-blocking system. So any any time you do something like I/O or you read or write to a file, um, deep down that that's that's a an asynchronous operation that your computer's probably either running synchronous synchronously or asynchronously. I think there's um, non-blocking networking stacks are fairly common at this point, but most um, read and writes to hardware are just synchronous waiting for operations to complete. Um, so we could even think about computer architectures or even hardware that's built with reactive programming in mind in the same way that you have FPGAs or uh, chips that are specifically designed for cryptocurrencies or machine learning. You might have an equivalent for running reactive streams or reactive chains. There might even be novel computer architectures that you could you could think of that are really optimized for running reactive programs yeah exactly yeah, yeah. i think that's um definitely an interesting observation um uh, I, yeah you see that now a lot of these machine learning platforms and uh, have kind of lended themselves very well to the uh, computational models of a gpu right and uh, then you see the huge boost in uh, popularity of nvidia products because this just lends itself very well to training a lot of the artificial neural networks and uh, linear regression algorithms and uh, you name it the different uh, different machine learning models um, and indeed it's it's that kind of it's that kind of trade-off between investing heavily in designing some sort of bespoke piece of hardware to get the job done or modeling your software around the hardware and that's just I guess the the back and forth that you have uh, in general between how do you design and designing these efficient systems is that um, maybe if there's enough critical mass uh, on react the reactive programming front then indeed you'll start to get 
bespoke hardware. I mean, not necessarily uh, needs to be uh, your personal hardware, like a laptop or something, but definitely the cloud uh, providers could pivot in a way to, um, yeah, provide computer hardware and compute power that is just far more efficient for running certain categories of, of uh, software implementations. Uh, I think that's a really interesting one. and. Um, yeah, going back to what you said before about the um, asynchronous uh, I/O, that is, a, of course, I think I don't think we even touched upon this uh, part yet, and uh, around reactive programming, and that is that it one of its key selling points is indeed that it's um, non-blocking um, and asynchronous, uh, and does uh, asynchronous I/O or lends itself. Let's say the drivers lend themselves to asynchronous I/O, and I think that's true. Anything that uh, now supports or uses the uh, um, the EPOL interface uh, for in the Linux kernel and the EPOL waits uh, API can definitely get huge uh, performance benefits from not having to uh, spawn a thread that then blocks and listens to some synchronous I/O, but instead handing this off to uh, EPOL awaits, which anyway is responsible for listing, uh, you know, having all the file descriptors on your on your machine and uh, awaiting for uh, for the response uh, from any of the file descriptors, whether that's disk or network or uh, whatever device you're actually reading uh, information from. So I think that was also, a, you know, a synergy that needed to that needed to happen in the reactive world for it to again get a kickstart uh, or or a kickoff because. Um, yeah, otherwise you're just spawning then groups of thread threads that are, you know, heavy in terms of uh, memory allocation uh, and context switching and um, just doing the blocking operations there. And of course, most of the applications that we, at least we design and a lot of the industry uh, designs, especially in, uh, especially for web application development is highly reliant on, um, yeah, on IO of whether it be database calls or other service calls. So this is kind of a critical um, critical turning point. And then to go one further back, because you also touched upon a super interesting topic around the um, operation fusion, which is, yeah, in, in, in Project Reactor, they have indeed this uh, concept of, of fusion, of fusion operators, and essentially uh, there's two variants, there's the uh, microfusion and macrofusion, and um, I gotta get this one the wrong way around, but I think microfusion is the operator to operator fusion. Uh, and what I mentioned before is that the implementation of uh, Rx, Java, and Reactor are heavily re reliant on essentially just predefined queues. Um, so they all just initialize for an operator a queue size of, I don't know, a few hundred, a thousand uh, elements. And of course, if you're chaining a huge uh, long chain of reactive operators, let's say you do a map, a flat map, a reduce, then you do a collect, and then you uh, stream that collection again. Uh, of course, that's just a lot of repeated queues defined one after another. And the patterns which you implement a functional chain are, uh, a lot of them are fairly common. So if going from a map to a flat map or a flat map to a map is a very common operation. So, you know, taking a stream, mapping it, or rather, let's say, flat mapping it to another, let's say your database driver that then you use as an input and then gives you, returns you another stream uh, and then flat mapping that back into the original stream and then doing a map over that. So trans translate the documents from one type to another type. Um, that's like a very common operation and then that's how they optimize um, using mac microfusion uh, is to actually just join those operations together and declare a single queue um, and then you don't have to do any message passing between the um, or copying of elements from one queue to another queue you can just share the same queue uh, and do that operation essentially merged into one um, and that obviously you get uh, real performance benefits from that too um, but yeah, so I, I think um, I think it's easy to be guided though by performance, uh, and that's because reactive programming has sort of sold itself as like the you know the next level of um, performant Java applications. And yes, that is true. But there's also you can also achieve the same or similar performance, let's say, by implementing your own 
uh, concurrency model in your application and I find that in general this is a more philosophical question uh, do you think that developers just focus perhaps a little bit too much on performance as being like the holy grail of non-functional requirements of a system because I get the impression that you know it's the easiest thing to to test sometimes you know it's easiest to show oh this is just faster than that and humans love things that are fast I mean we love uh, creating fighter jets and jet planes and space rockets that go as fast as possible and when we want to read stats about something we always look at the or miles per hour or the kilometers per hour of uh, that device and yeah I don't know whether that's just focusing sometimes on the the wrong non-functional yeah I think with with performance it's it's one of those things that are very easy to measure and so they they, they become overrepresented in things that you track just because they it's it's very easy to to track performance it's just a, a, a metric that you can it's it's much harder to um, track correctness it's like famously difficult to prove mathematically the correctness of a program it, it it's a almost an infeasible undertaking that that's only been only been done a handful of times i think for I do think that performance is important. I think that we're seeing a resurgence of languages like Rust and Go because we can't we can't ignore performance anymore because single chip Moore's law is coming. It seems appears to be coming to an end, at least for the current uh, substrates that we're using at the moment for CPUs. I, I I think for for many applications that are consumer facing, the difference between ten milliseconds and fifty milliseconds is not going to add sufficient benefit to justify migrating your entire system to reactive programming. I think at, at the, at the, it's another question when, when you're trying to establish whether you want to buy into the reactive model is how performance you really need your databases and your microservices to be. Netflix obviously has millions of customers that it, it serves, you know, petabytes of data to. But if you have a basic business, a, a user-facing user facing business, and you're, you're tracking their details. I mean, those kind of CRUD systems have, have been built for half a century. Most of the databases and backend frameworks are already about as performant as they could possibly be with respect to their target platforms. So I, I do agree that uh, performance it weighs a little bit too large on the minds of programmers when there's almost certainly other metrics they could be tracking which would be more helpful for product quality and for uh, reliability. Um, are, there, are there any, in your industry experience, do you think that there's anything that's particularly under-tracked in, in, in producing high-quality software? Yeah, I think it's, very, yeah, it's hard to say um, in general. I think, from my experience, one thing that I've perhaps myself not focused enough on, well, I focus, hmm. It's a good question. I mean, testability is probably um, is probably one of the more neglected non-functional requirements, I would say, of a system. Uh, very broadly, that testing is, um, I think, in a number of uh, companies, especially ones growing uh, from a startup uh, to a scale-up, um, uh, one that they uh, will put more focus on because as you you know grow as a small company once you are serving 1,000 customers testing is a relatively you know quality of service isn't quite as important as when you're an established product with hundreds of thousands millions of customers and I think therefore the software that you create has to somehow shape in order to or change shape in order to become or lend itself more towards becoming tested more testable um, and that can start at the like software architectural level, you know, designing a system that permits itself to being better unit tested, to defining better unit test scenarios, um, but also just application in a self-contained uh, container being 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 able to be tested better as a uh, as a single component with component tests or integration tests, um, seeing how it interacts with other systems and end-to-end -end tests. Then I guess of does my entire flow of all the applications within a organization or within a within my products does that all behave as I expect with a series of scenarios and uh, having your system set up and in a position to or, or you know exposing the right APIs or externalizing configuration correctly such that it can be tested and, and being able to have scenarios directly injected into 
a set of services. I think that's a really important uh, thing that you know, as you grow as a company, you, you should lend more of uh, of your time and and in, in invested into uh, into improving that. And I think other ones are kind of fairly obvious, like security. Again, one of those non functionals that, um, especially as a smaller company, you, you will put behind uh, perhaps even performance. I mean, it's really hard to say exactly, you know, how one compares to another without a concrete example. Um, but it's a feeling of what I get as, you know, if you're going to make a, a trade-off, um, you're not necessarily going to be doing it in the most Pareto optimal way or the, uh, you're not really considering what is the, what are all of the non-functionals that play here when I'm designing a system and seeing what is the uh, Pareto optimal solution for that, given your requirements. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's natural as long as you're doing some, as long as you're progressively making steps to making your systems better as, uh, you know, in all of those regards or, re, or moving towards some sort of Pareto optimal implementation, um, then I think that's the, that's the best path that you can go on. Um, and there's plenty of, 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 you know, cool software tools, frameworks out there to help, help, you know, improve that, those non-functionals that are often um that are often neglected uh, and to at least catch the let's say the the lowest hanging fruit so when it comes to security for example something very simple and you have a myriad of different frameworks now that automate entirely the uh, vulnerability checks uh, that may be introduced within the system and there's some basic rules um, applied and there's a huge library then of these basic rules that you know check for the most basic vulnerabilities and that is already better than doing nothing right um, and then you have also these tools for uh, detecting uh, vulnerabilities in the dependencies that you use in your application because like any wouldn't say any almost all large organizations uh, small medium and large your tech organizations you're relying heavily on open source software and vulnerabilities are just I guess just a part of the nature of software and, and automating checking those, having a good vulnerability detection database and uh, automating the checks. I think that's already enough. And um, there's lots of interesting tooling as well around coming into uh, detecting uh, vulnerabilities within uh, Terraform and Kubernetes configurations and Helm charts uh, configurations. So really everywhere in your infrastructure and your application development it's easy to get those, you know, lowest hanging fruits out of your system. You know, the easiest vulnerabilities, the ones that can cause you also the most pain. Um, then you have to, of course, as you grow as an organization, invest more time into um, security as, as a wider topic. But I think uh, there's already a lot of stuff that you can do to improve the state of a variety of different non-functional requirements of your system just by looking out there and seeing what, what things can do it for you, basically. You mentioned um, around the topic of testing, uh, testing being Pareto optimal. Do you mean that uh, you, you want to have sort of the, the smallest number of tests that test the largest portion of your system? So more in Pareto, what I mean by Pareto optimal is um, not necessarily the Pareto rule. So the Pareto, Pareto rule is then indeed the 80-20 rule. So that's, you know, uh, twenty percent of your let's say twenty percent of your tests should be testing eighty percent of your code uh, kind of rule, uh, or twenty percent of your scenarios let's say should be testing eight percent of your functionality of your code. Um, but the Pareto uh, Pareto efficiency and Pareto optimality is like the it's an actually a, an economics um, principle. It's that or and and also in I think in voting systems as well. It's that by changing your vote or changing your position in an economic setting or a voting setting that you cannot make uh, another party uh, better or worse off. Um, so you're getting to essentially an equilibrium in all of your non-functional requirements of a system uh, such that you reach a sort of optimal trade-off between all of them. And of course, it's not so easy to define in terms of non-functionals because um, not all non-functionals are easy to, to measure, right? Like a non-functional requirement doesn't map directly onto one specific measurement. Uh, even ones that, like you said before, ones that are relatively transparent in that regard, performance, you know, how many requests a second does it serve? How uh, 
uh, how much context switching does it have to do, how much memory does it require, how much CPU uh, does it need to burn in order to compute some result. Those things are types of measurements to measure that non-functional, but there's no single one that you can say this makes a performance system. Um, because yes, you can you can break any you can break a lot of problems down from uh, a large chunk of work into a so say a divide and conquer kind of uh, solution, and then you just write, like then you just scale up your uh, infrastructure and uh, essentially distribute your problem over a number of different nodes, and then if you measure performance on just the the time it takes for that job to complete, then of course you can compromise on plenty of other uh, non-functional requirements, uh, which costing is, is a non-functional requirement um, because it's not a functional one uh, or pricing let's say you know how, how expensive is the software to run um, so there is no um, there's no Pareto optimal uh, balance you know in a textbook but there's one for your requirements uh, and your let's say the culture and the attitude of a company that there is a Pareto optimal balance there you know some a point where everyone is in agreement to say that this is the right amount of testing this is the right amount of uh, security this is the right amount this is this is how much it should, it should cost this is how performance it should be um, so yeah I, I do think that's um, but it's 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 just that sometimes that you know the gap between getting even close to that Pareto uh, efficiency is so huge uh, like I mentioned before you know in security independency checking uh, for, uh, sorry, uh, vulnerability checking in your dependencies is such a these days such a simple thing to achieve, um, and it can uh, you know boost your security. I guess you know very very vague term, but you can increase your uh, application security massively by just employing something as simple as that, and that would already not make you worse off anywhere else. Um, so you're nowhere near the Pareto optimal trade off at that point um, if you don't do that. Of course, there's some. Like you mentioned, like too many tests is also going to be causing you pain uh, in other non-functional um, aspects as well, right? So there, yeah, there is a trade-off to, to, to there for, for, let's say, I mean, depending on how where you are with your your testing suite and how well tested your application is, then it's probably you're, you're more likely to have a good suite of tests and and then be potentially over testing your application such that you acquire huge amounts of testing debt um, to maintain those tests over time and you know to keep them um, uh, whenever you refactor your code you have to update them you know you paid a price uh, at some point that idea of a of a Pareto optimal state is, is quite an interesting one I think a, a lot of programmers already have the sort of intuition that you can you can make your code more performant by making it less readable in a lot of cases you, you there's like famous like you have these ray traces that people write in c and they're like 50 lines but it would probably take you a week to decipher what what is happening and, and half of it is like unexpected be memory behavior i think what makes it difficult is that especially with the non-functional requirements you you don't you can't measure what you currently have but you also can't really measure what your um you can't you can't measure the current state but you can't really measure the requirement i mean how how do you get a sense for how much security you actually need? You don't know the level at which you might be attacked tomorrow. And going crazy, like you said, with, with making things as secure as possible, like the, the ray tracer of 50 lines of code equivalent of security is sort of like locking your developers out of their own machines and um, you know, you, you know, putting everything into a, into a secret uh, isolated server or something. Um, and that, of course, also has its own performance ramifications and in you know it might not even reduce your attack vector if you don't if you're not fully aware of how you're vulnerable i mean you might go through all of this effort and then they might uh, attack you through a social engineering they might e just email one of your engineers and that might actually be your, your biggest vulnerability where about do you lie on the sort of test-driven development spectrum because i think all developers range from either zero tests or you know testing literally everything yeah yeah interesting one i mean it's a th sounds nice in practice sounds so nice that i wish i did it um and it's it's a bit like the exercise you know if you if you you're probably dreading doing it uh you probably do it and you realize how uh fantastic that was for your happiness and and you know you feel much better about uh about yourself after you do do a bit of exercise and um break a sweat but it's one of those things that i to be quite honest 
never really had the um, say the patience or the discipline to attempt um, apart from a few very basic coding you know examples but more more interestingly never never done it in um, application or feature development uh, myself and I think it's it's indeed just a tough concept when um, so I say that it's a tough concept because you don't know the requirements but of course you know, if you don't know the requirements then test driven development can be a good way of also uncovering what should actually the system for how should it function after my change how sh you know if I'm extending this uh, uh, the system with another feature and or a modification to an existing feature um, of the system uh, if I'm not able to write a test for it then perhaps that you know I, depending on what level you are doing your test driven development in your testing pyramid because now I'm thinking more along the lines of unit tests but of course you can achieve that you can achieve TDD through uh, any tests uh, preferably if they're automated because then you can uh, just run them every time you run a build or you run a deployment um, in your CI pipeline but yeah I um, I think it can be over I think maybe I'm skeptical because I've not seen it applied in a real world case um, and because it's a workflow it's also hard to see that because um, unless there's someone say committing first a, um, a PR for uh, you know a change to the feature that is just an introduction of a test that then fails and then they follow up with the second PR which then solves that uh, or resolves that um, test then I can I can see then how the workflow of someone can be exposed but if I'm just to say have I seen people actually do it in their own workflow of beginning with the tests, then writing the implementation, then you know showing the the world or at least the the, the showing their team uh, their code as a final as final products? Then you don't know what workflow they've been through. Um, but I've never seen it applied to something more than just you know very simple examples of uh, you know build a build a stack essentially within uh, within uh, your programming language, just build a stack data structure and some. Uh, some of the pop and push operations of a stack um, and I would like to see it being applied to bigger projects um, where you can help also eke out all of the requirements and all the specifics of a project um, by and this is a trade-off by essentially making the implementation uh, or the progress towards the final solution slower in the beginning um, which I think can deter a lot of people uh, from attempting it. I don't know if that's so. I'm very much on the bottom end of the spectrum. You know, I think it's a, a a pretty idea and have never tried it myself before. Um, I think there's even purists who will say, uh, I've heard these. Uh, I can't remember what the what the term is called, but you know, you um, you even have the TDD, which is almost disciplinary. You have as soon as you break it as soon as you break a test um, and you uh, as soon as you break a test it will always reset your most recent work back to uh, or, or it undo all of your most recent work until the test last passed um, which basically which is basically a way of working towards a solution and then being sure that it's the right solution before you run your test and if the test fails then it's just gonna undo all of your work and you have to start again um, and that will force you then to write really really small incremental steps uh, on your way to implementing that final solution rather than big changes um, because if you you know you, no one then wants to risk losing a ton of work because their test wasn't very well coupled to their uh, to their code um, but then I can imagine you're starting to get a lot of uh, uh, production code that takes the shape of testing code which is also something that I really despise <laughs> I don't know what, how about you where are you on that spectrum I'd say I probably am I'm roughly at the same place. Um, I think the TDD, as it's sort of academically described, I think is a little bit of a programmer's pipe dream. Like there's a few of these uh, sort of idealistic utopian programming ideas that I think are a little bit dangerous to buy into. Um, and they, they sort of, they don't recognize how the, the average developer actually works. You, you mentioned earlier, like your, your number of tests can't increase constantly and you expect that to not impact your build ecosystem or your developer productivity in any way. One way to, to think of this is that as your tests increase, 
the delta for code changes per functional change should increase as well. So if you're making some logic change, you would expect more tests to be changed if, you, if you're prescribing to this TDD paradigm. So even just on a, on a line number change, you're making more changes than you would be otherwise. You could say that those changes would be potentially safer, but those changes need to be made nonetheless. And we all know how frustrating it is to, to make a small single Boolean change and then have to update multiple files just to get your build to pass. There, there is a number of tests which sort of maximally proves the correctness of your system without being impactful to develop a productivity. And I, I think as long as teams are sort of cognizant of the overhead that tests are placing on their project, um, I also think that people shouldn't be hesitant to delete tests, like tests don't need to live forever. Um, no, indeed. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, no, and, and to be honest, it's it, yeah, testing is a there's no universally defined um, test sufficiency measurement, right? I mean, t code coverage is just one that is forever going to be a debate in the uh, software engineering world. Um, and I'm certainly on the side of it's it's a, it's a probably a good enough measure for now. We need to think about what we can do to make it better because, you know, we're never going to get to solving the halting problem, um, you know. Alan Turing would probably be rolling in his grave if he heard about us uh, in any way uh, talk about these kind of trade-offs and how to make a perfect balance between uh, between the two because there, there isn't really one. Um, I would um, just I like to think more yeah, in the future about what, what that could be. And, and you know, there's mutation testing and there's, you know, you can have mutation code uh, coverage uh, metrics as well to guide you and uh, to guide your software products um, but I think yeah code coverage is um, I mean it's almost so blatantly um, it, it yeah blatantly disregards the halting problem that it, it is almost insulting um, because you know why what we design software knowing that one one run of that uh, one scenario, one execution of that line of code is not going to be enough to test it thoroughly um, because we know it's going to handle a variety of different inputs. Um, but at least we can give our program maybe a range of inputs that we expect it to behave normally under. Um, and if we first do that and say this is the range, then we can get a better code coverage um, uh, metric because then we can say for, you know, for this for this range it worked well, for this other range it didn't work well, for 90% uh, of it it did overall, so that's good enough. Um, and then you have a coverage per line of how well it handles that specific input range. Um, and of course there's always going to be a lower and upper bound that you need to, um, that you need to give it. Um, and, and also there's the, yeah, if you really want to get picky then the data that you're also giving it is going to be, well in most cases natural, right, it's not going to be random data. Um, depending on your domain. Um, it depends on what kind of system you're testing, of course. If you're uh, testing a device that reads static noise from the solar system, then of course you need to uh, give it give it um, high entropy inputs, but likely we will need to give our software, in most cases, low entry inputs, uh, entropy inputs. Um, so, you know, email addresses, customer names, um, customer addresses, payment transactions, um, these kind of things, you know, that's those very very low entropy. Uh, that's very low entropy data, and therefore we can test our program under that specific range of low entropy information. And of course, passwords and stuff is yeah okay. That's going to be uh, you hope high entropy. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one to measure, and there you know coming back to it, it's then an even harder one to define a Pareto, uh, a Pareto frontier or, you know, what, what is the Pareto fr frontier of, say, testing and um, security, uh, the trade-off between the two. I mean, it's, um, it's so hard to, it's so hard to define. It's almost more being aware of them and, uh, yeah, and being able to make the right, a good decision for your specific requirements of your software. I think that's the best that you can you can do and also communicating them as well like effectively I think that's a real um, 
that's a real skill to have I think um, just be able to say explain to someone who perhaps won't understand at all what you mean when you when it comes to your application performance but getting them to see the trade-offs you're making um, your business stakeholders the trade-offs you're making and getting them to understand and if they understand it better then uh, I think you can in most cases work together faster and uh, see the constraints of uh, help them see the constraints of systems that you built um, I think that's a really important point um, yeah but uh, I actually have a um, kind of going back to the computational models discussion there a broad question for you uh, of all let's say of all of the models of computation this is anyway a relatively broad umbrella term but let's say any any programming language any framework any uh, any design pattern any model of, of computation or architectural pattern what you know what is something that has let's say wowed you in the world of computational models uh, the most in your memory say yeah I actually think I have kind of a contrarian answer in that um, I'm very interested in the prospect of logic programming so languages like Prolog and there's also a, an implementation called Datalog which is actually sort of a, a database slash language hybrid um, where you can sort of query your database in sort of a logic algebra format. I still think that logic programming will have its will come back into fashion in a similar way that sort of functional programming comes in and out of we were kind of going through a, a second resurgence after functional programming was quite popular in the 70s and it's sort of coming back now. But I think for especially as a pairing with machine learning, I think having systems that can sort of systematically work through algebraic rules and just apply those and find solutions to problems. Programming in Prolog is, is like a very, very foreign way of, of thinking. It's sort of it's more that you're describing your domain and then you can query things about that domain and those queries get answered in, in some mechanism. The big um, thing that's held Prolog back is the performance issue because it do, does backpropagation and like it basically has to brute force a lot of a lot of the, the work where, where you might do it efficiently by just telling the, the steps that it would do to uh, find solutions. Uh, but, but I think if we could discover new um, implementations of logic, pro logic programming languages, I think that they could really uh, increase the productivity of programmers and allow new problems to actually be solved. Interesting what you say there, like um, about declarative languages in general, they require a, like, I mean, they are so simple and they are so in, in, intuitive because they take away some complexity. Uh, and if the engine underneath them, i.e. whether that be Postgres or MySQL or uh, Snowflake, whatever your SQL declarative uh, execution engine is, um, that is essentially just executing relational algebra statements in the form of SQL statements. If that's not doing the optimization well under the hood, then isn't that just more of a failing of the system itself? So in this case, isn't maybe there are just more uh, optimal solutions for a declarative prolog engine, but perhaps there just hasn't been the time spent on it, or the investigation into it, or like you know the, the resources, the backing behind it. I think that the that a logic system would pair very nicely with like machine like trained systems because uh, machine learning systems have this very intuition style like um, they're kind of ephemeral it reminds me of this book thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman where you have these sort of two modes of thinking you've got like a fast and a slow uh, part of your mind where there's a part of your brain which kind of does heuristic solutions to problems very quickly uh, and then there's a, a methodical sort of mathematical algebraic uh, part of your brain um, and I think that if, if you could build a system that simultaneously can uh, generate new rules like new predicates basically new facts about the world and also apply those rules to problems and you can do that iteratively so through the application of your pr program it can actually learn new things and then use that knowledge to do new things itself um, it, the, the, this it, it sounds very abstract, but I, I really do think that um, that could, it could be very lucrative to build systems of this of that kind because they could address real time like traffic problems. Or uh, imagine if you had the the buzz the buzz term is like smart cities, but if you could have a an integrated sort of city system that learns new things about cars or learns new um, patterns in pedestrians and 
uh, over time you can have this sort of adaptive model and you don't even need to program in the patterns that you're looking for it can just just discover what patterns are useful for whatever goals you set interesting and, and in your opinion do you see that then as a replacement in machine learning let's say if if prologue and, and logical programming is well you know as it as it suggests it's it's all built upon propositional logic um, and then you on the other hand you have then the statistical models that we now use for machine learning do you see them being then in living in hybrid or, or that one has eventually becomes the successor i.e logical programming over uh, machine learning I think that they they probably pair nicely uh, because there's there's different sort of gradients of truth um, that you would need to somehow model because um, when a machine learning algorithm identifies a cat in a picture um, there's a confidence associated with that prediction but it, it needs the the way that it would apply logical rules within sort of like a prologue engine is that it would need to model that uncertainty in, a, in some way and it still needs to acquire those rules in in some way so the another hindrance of prologue being widely adopted is that it's not less work to program with prologue but it's a different type of input you kind of have to do all of this very rote you kind of have to invent a small little universe for yourself where you have a definition of what a friend is and what a uh, like the famous example is a cousin or a or a sibling uh, you have to invent these sort of definitions before you even start talking about your your problem whereas you might you might have modeled it just as like a linked list uh, now you have to actually think about what concrete relationships model your entities uh, which might be an, an inherently valuable thing in itself but it does require more upfront work from a design perspective yeah indeed then you need a uh, <laughs> a sort of matrix architect type right like someone who is responsible for architecting the definitions of society and how people interact and the properties of people and uh, and the logic of the universe right putting the woman with the red dress in and all, the, all yeah the exactly indeed <laughs> <laughs> well i think uh phil we should probably cut it at that uh thanks for sharing your thoughts on computation this evening yeah sure thanks very much reagan uh, i think it's a really great way to kick off this podcast i had a lot of fun till next time yeah till next time see you folks bye-bye cheers <laughs>